Thanks for choosing this podcast on the deep dive into concussion assessment. This podcast is part of a mini series covering various aspects of the new concussion consensus statements that have been published in the BGSM. My name is Liam West and I'm a sports doctor working in both the elite and private clinical settings and I am very excited to introduce my guest, Dr. Ruben Echemendia. Ruben is a sports neuropsychologist with extensive clinical and research experience with sports-related concussion and is internationally renowned for his work in this space. We're very lucky to have him on the podcast, so thank you for taking the time to speak to us, Ruben. Thanks for having me. So Ruben, it's been five years since the SCAP-5 was published in the BGSM. What have we learned in retrospect about this SCAT as an assessment tool during this time period? I think the key issue is that the the current systematic review that we've conducted really builds on the prior systematic review and the data are relatively consistent, although expanding on what we have learned from the past. I think the most important take-home message, again, which is consistent with the prior data, is that the SCAT 6 is most effective, or any of the SCAT tools are most effective within the first 72 hours of injury. Beyond that 72 hours, the utility of the test begins to diminish until the point that we get to seven days, beyond which the the SCAT tools really have very little utility, at least the SCAT-5 or the SCAT-6. As a result of that, the SCAT-6 is much more of a an initial acute evaluation as opposed to a tool for return to play. For those individuals who are tested beyond that seven-day period or are being tested for return to play purposes, other measures should be used, for example, like the SCOT-6, which was developed as the companion to the SCAT-6, where the SCAT-6 is acute, the SCOT-6 is post-acute. Other things that we found are that the 10-word the list clearly is better than the five-word list in that it eliminates the ceiling effect that we saw on the five-word list, so we're recommending only the use of the 10-word list at this point in time. We also found that, again, consistent with prior research, that the test-retest stability of some of the measures is not in the range that we would really like them to be. So there are measures that we have taken to increase that stability, such as developing a total cognitive score test, which will increase the reliability. Also increasing the difficulty, the, the challenge of some of the tests that may exhibit a bit of a ceiling effect, such as the concentration subtests. So the concentration subtests were designed to be a bit more challenging in this new uh, SCAT-6, although it doesn't change much in the way of administration. We do hope it increases the utility of the tool. And the last thing is that we were really disappointed to find that there was very limited representation of research globally. The research that has been published to date tends to be more specific to North America and North American sports. So we need a lot more global research. Um, there was very little, if any, on five to 12 year olds, some moderate work at the level of the adolescent. So we need, we have work to do in terms of children 
adolescence, as well as gaining representation more globally and representation of para-athletes. I think that's a nice call to action for all of the uh, clinicians and budding researchers there to get involved and uh, improve the literature. Thanks for letting us into those insights of how you've reviewed the SCAT 5. We'll move on to the SCAT 6. Can you take the listener through the development of SCAT 6? What was the actual process? Who was involved, obviously, above and beyond yourself? The development of the SCAT 6 began now approximately six years ago because we had the pandemic in the middle there, which caused a bit of a problem in terms of the development. The the team that comprises the systematic review for the SCAT-6 is in excess of 32 co-authors. It's a very big team. And it was a very big team because we had a huge number of studies that were finally selected for extraction in the SCAT-6 review. There were approximately 620 papers that were selected for extraction, which is a huge systematic review by any measure. And we needed that number of individuals to work with it. And the process began along standard lines of the systematic review, and that is you develop a review question. Once you develop that review question, then you develop what are the key words or the key search terms that are required. That then went to our librarians who queued that in, searched the world's literature for anything that was related to our key search terms and was related to the acute evaluation of sports concussion. Following that, then we start the process of cleanup. And that is, are there any studies in there that don't belong? Are there any studies that, for example, may have been animal studies as opposed to, to human studies? Then we had to examine the the studies for whether indeed they fit our inclusion-exclusion criteria. Are they the type of study that we wanted to include? Did they have the right parameters uh, for inclusion? Following that, then we got into the weeds. That means that we, we start looking at each article in detail. And in that process, we evaluate each article for what's called risk of bias which means the quality of the paper. So what is the quality of the review? And based on the quality ratings, then some get included in the final, some do not get included in the final. And then we, we move on from there to then working with and presenting the data at the Amsterdam meeting. We presented that in a public forum in which we had input from the audience we had input from other abstracts that were presented at that point in time. Then we combined that all and worked with the expert panel members to come up with what are the consensus statements that are based on this review, and then the recommendations that are made for the development of the SCAT-6. It's impressive to even hear, let alone understand how much work has gone into these consensus papers. So obviously on behalf of the BDSM, we thank you and your co-authors. I love the fact it's becoming more complex in, in the clinical setting. I work, I agree. I find that there's a, a, a sort of a ceiling with some of my athletes. And so I'm actually really interested to hear possibly in order of, of what's changed um, specifically and give us really that clinical insight and how does that SCAT-6 differ from the SCAT-5 in terms of the different parts of the test that we're all used to doing? Sure. So what we did is we went through each step of the SCAT-5 and examined the literature in the context of that SCAT-5 
And what is it that we can improve on? We started off very early on in terms of the demographic question. So we wanted an enhanced demographic section that actually allowed us to get at some of these social cultural variables that we couldn't get at because of the SCAT-5. So we included those. We made it a specific point to indicate that the SCAT-6 takes a minimum, an emphasis on minimum, of 10 to 15 minutes to be performed correctly. And we did that specifically for those sports who are putting time limits on evaluations that, that need to be done for players. As we mentioned earlier, we emphasize that the SCAT-6 has the maximum utility within the 72 hours of injury, and that after that, one really needs to switch over to an even more complex tool in order to capture the nuances of any sequelae, any problems that still may exist as a result of the, the injury. The immediate assessment and neurological screening section has been completely re revised, and you'll see that there's a very nice flow diagram now that takes you through each step and what to do at each step. The coordination and ocular motor screening section has also been in enhanced to include some other components. The red flag section has been enhanced. We decided to remove the section of the SCAT-5 where it has the athlete read the instructions out loud for the symptoms. Um, we felt that that was really not giving us what we wanted, so we ended up removing that we also removed the five-word list option, as I mentioned. We talked about making the tests a bit more complex. So the months in reverse, which is part of the concentration subtest, was made more complex by adding a timed component. So now the athlete not only has to say the, athlete, the months in reverse correctly, but also gets credit for doing it faster. So the faster they do it, the better they will end up scoring. And we revised the coordination and balance examination section to include a progression from the standard MBES to the tandem gate to then a dual task tandem gate. So you have an increase in complexity so that you can use that in order to really get at more of the nuances for the different types of balance, because not all balance and postural stability measures measure the same thing so that added complexity is going to give the clinician a bit more options and then we really expanded the instruction section so that it's clear for the examiner what needs to be done with each step and we really want to emphasize the need for the examiner to read the instructions you know it's important that the examiner do the test in a standardized manner and in the way that the test was designed to be used they're great uh, insight, great to see why things have changed. And I think I'd be the first to put my hand up to say for a fair few years, I think I was performing what would have been the SCAT 3 back then without reading the instruction sheet. And when I read it, I was rather horrified at things I was doing wrong, not that I ever told the athletes. Okay, that's great. Uh, we'll move on quite quickly. Um, what you mentioned after the 72 hours, we should move across to the SCOT. Could you just touch on what's in that that's not in the SCAT 6? The way I've described it thus far is it takes the SCAT-6 and it puts it on steroids. It provides additional options for the clinician, not only to go into more depth within each domain 
that they're assessing, but added domains. So for example, there is an autonomic dysfunction section that assesses the autonomic nervous system. There is a a section that takes a look at mental health variables and allows you to assess anxiety, depression, and other mental health variables that really are key in terms of return to play. For some athletes, it becomes really problematic, and this gives you the opportunity to do that. It adds more to the vestibular ocular motor examination. For example, it has the VOMS available to it, which is a measure that is a confrontation measure to the ocular motor system. It also provides for more in-depth coverage, as I said earlier. For example, if a 10-word list is too easy, you can go to a 15-word list, which takes it even to a different level. So the real goal of that tool was to allow for a more in-depth examination, not so that the healthcare provider becomes a jack-of-all-trades and can do everything, but rather that it becomes a referral tool. It allows you to assess the domains and to know when there's an issue and when you need to refer to a more specialized healthcare provider to attack those particular domains that seem to to be affected. Because that tool is primarily for frontline healthcare workers who may not have the experience in all of these domains and may not see issues with all of these domains throughout their standard practice. That's great. I think you've really whet the appetite for the listener to go away, read the new papers, the new consensus papers, and engage with the various tools and see how they may be able to benefit them in clinical practice. Yeah, if I may add, just a a point to underscore that. So the consensus document is made up of 10 underlying systematic reviews. The consensus document has limits in terms of words, right? It can only be so long. So a lot of what's in the consensus document, those those are the key issues, but there's a lot more in the underlying systematic reviews. And for the listener, if they are interested, they should really read the underlying systematic review because it does provide more information. It may not be the best bedtime reading because it's dense with research, but it does provide the foundation for why we came to the decisions that we did. Finally, whilst I've got some of your pedigree on the line, it would be remiss of me not to ask and try and tip into your expertise. What are your top clinical tips or clinical pearls of wisdom for the listener when assessing concussion? I think the number one thing that is often forgotten is to be a clinician. And that is that we can give you tools, we can give you lots of different things, but how an individual performs these tasks, the context in which this individual performs this, who that individual is, where are they coming from? What's their cultural background? What is their family background? Because that all comes into play, particularly when we're assessing cognitive functions. And really to remember that you're a clinician and to try to take a look at what factors may be contributing to the scores you're getting. If the scores are lower than expected, is it because the athlete is anxious? The athlete wants to return to play and knows that if they don't do well, that they may not return to play, Conscious, as a result of which they look anxious, they act anxious, and their scores are going to be lower on some of the cognitive tests, not just the mental health tests. So attention and concentration is affected by anxiety. Attention and concentration is affected by depression. 
attention and concentration is affected by not having breakfast in the morning. And that, so you really need to look at the athlete in context and not just look at the numbers. I think it's a really powerful way to end this podcast and to keep the listener thinking about exactly what they're doing in this complex area of medicine. So thank you so much for your time on the podcast today, Ruben. You're very welcome. It's my pleasure. Thanks again to you, the listener, for tuning into this podcast on concussion assessment, which, as I mentioned, is part of a mini podcast series on the new concussion consensus statements. You can find the other podcasts and the other content, such as infographics and video abstracts via the BGSM website and our social media channels. I hope you get to have a physically active day. <laughs>